So let me introduce Dr. Koo. Dr. Koo is a professor and vice chairman at the Department of Dermatology at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco. He's board certified in both psychiatry and dermatology. He is director of UCSF Psoriasis Treatment Center, Phototherapy Unit, and the Clinical Research Unit, and Psychodermatology Clinic. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone for having me here. Um, I think every couple of years I come back to this meeting, and this meeting is, I think, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which is a nice thing. Um, so if you ever wonder, I've, you know, which one was I trained in first? It's actually psychiatry. And, um, and I was sort of delighted that there's plenty of opportunity to use psychiatry in dermatology. And it's not actually limited to people who are obviously in need of psychiatric help, like people with delusional suppressedosis or Morgellons, um, but actually even day-to-day -day interaction. Uh, it's amazing how uh, some psychological or psychiatric uh, sophisticated understanding can really make things better. You know, for example, um, if I see somebody with psoriasis, and all I wanted to do is to write a prescription. So this person has psoriasis, you know, I write Casper-Trying, which is of course Dovonex, and say, hey, you have psoriasis. You know, here's a prescription for Dovonex. Twice a day, bye. Now, <laughs> uh, according to my medical tra school training and residency, I did everything I'm supposed to do. Diagnosis, differential diagnosis, gave appropriate prescription, and I said bye. <laughs> but guess what? This is likely to be a failure, because what, what's going to happen is patient gets so excited, go home with Dovonex, put it on, expecting something wonderful to happen in like maybe a week or two, and oftentimes they don't see that. And then they say, oh, I'm not the right patient for this medicine, and give up. In fact, that's exactly hap what happened when this particular medicine was uh, um, first used long times ago. You know, so what I'm trying to say is to make any kind of treatment success, it's important to have a little bit more psychological sophistication than what my residency or my medical school have taught me or perhaps yours, although I hope you had better education than I. Um, because something I did not do, I did not do expectation management. Knowing that non-steroid, like Dovonex, works slow. I need to explicitly and proactively tell the patient, this is a non-steroid. Since you said you prefer to avoid steroids or topical steroids, here is a non-steroid, but it's going to be slow. And if you don't use it twice a day, it's not going to work very well at all. And some people are slow responders. You might not see anything for six to eight weeks. Now, if I did that, then at least I did one other thing, which is called expectation management. I managed expectation for treatment that, that it's not going to work very quickly. Now, I could have done another thing above and beyond diagnosis, differential diagnosis, and appropriate prescription, I could have said, you can do it. You can do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that sounds kind of ridiculous. But when you deal with chronic disease like psoriasis that people have lifelong, it, I, I really come to appreciate that if the provider can be like personal trainer, it actually works very well. Because compliance, especially compliance with topical medicine where you have to put things on twice a day all over the body, it's not easy. Generations ago, we didn't even talk about compliance. When I was going to residency back in the 80s, nobody ever talked about compliance. Why? Because we took it for granted. You know, back two, three generations ago, you know, healthcare providers, including doctors, were like, God, if we say something, we took it for granted, it's going to be done. If it doesn't get done, then there's something seriously wrong with the patient. 
And then we found out that, in fact, most people don't do it. <laughs> that they really need help. You know, just like most, most of us know that it's good to exercise, but hard to do. You know, you know, every New Year we put, you know, New Year's resolution. <laughs> I go to gym twice a week or three times a week or every day. Guess how long that lasts. <laughs> you know, so, so what I'm trying to say is psychodermatology conjured up this picture of somebody really, you know, in serious uh, need of help, like Morgellons, delusional patients. But in fact, psychodermatology is everything. You know, even the simplest act of writing topical medicine, it makes a big difference if you're psychologically more with it or clueless. So with that, uh, I am going to focus on more severe conditions. Um, that's where the part about psychopharmacology comes in. But I'd just like to, um, to share with you the psychodermatology is everything we do. Uh, so now, I have no conflict of interest because um, I didn't have any choice. There's no industry that's interested in this. <laughs> I wish I had some conflict of you know, interest. But, but the reality is that if you go back to the last 20, 30, 40 years of dermatological journals, you don't find a single advertisement on Prozac, Paxil, anything. And unlike if you were to open the journals for internal medicine, family practice, general medicine, pediatrics, there's full of advertisement about psychotropic medication. You know, so among non-dermatology providers, like um, primary care physician, whether they should prescribe psychiatric medic you know, psychotropic medication or not, never come up as a question, because they're already doing it. Dermatology is a special in a field that the psychotropic industry forgot. You know, so within our specialty, whether you are physician's assistant or whether you're a dermatologist or a nurse practitioner, we have this peculiar mindset. Am I allowed to prescribe this Prozac when in fact most Prozac or Paxil or whatever is in prescribed by non-psychiatrists already? You know, so if you would uh, learn to do what I'm talking about, you are certainly a pioneer in dermatology, but not an anomaly in medicine. Once in a blue moon, psychiatrists actually prescribe more psychotropic medicine than all the non-psychiatrists. And then it's a big celebration time for the, for the psychiatry. Um, I'm going to use some brand name because I think it might be easier to understand what I'm talking about since this is not the kind of topic that's covered very well at uh, AAD or any other meetings. This is a um, cartoon that uh, one of my colleagues gave me long times ago. There's a man who's about to jump off a building, and there's a policeman with a dermatologist. <laughs> and the caption got cut off, but the caption said, we couldn't find a psychiatrist. Do you have any problem with your skin? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, uh, now, uh, this, this is funny, but unfortunately, or whatever, uh, this is the situation that happens frequently in dermatology practice, that we have somebody who obviously needs psychiatric help, but does not want to go see a psychiatrist or any other mental health professional. In fact, it's very ironic that more psychologically compromised they are. For example, people who are truly delusional, they are more resistant to going to a mental health professional. If somebody just has stress, and you say, okay, would you like to go see a mental health professional who might be able to teach you how to cope with your stress better? They might be delighted. But if somebody who have delusions or parastosis and say, oh, would you like to go see a psychiatrist? <laughs> you know how they're gonna react. <laughs> You know, so because psychodermatology involves many, th you know, it, it's a whole field. It's almost like pediatric dermatology or derm, you know, derm surgery. It's not one disease. It's a whole field. And it includes skin conditions that are uh, known to be exacerbated by stress or even precipitated by stress, which is most of the inflammatory skin conditions, including psoriasis, eczema, so forth. 
and also uh, psychological impact of disfigurement. I put alopecia areata, but most skin conditions are disfiguring. In fact, even though I put psoriasis up here, psoriasis also belongs down here. It's amazing how the provider and the patient, when they have psoriasis, define severity so differently. Typically, a provider comes in, like me, you know, take one look and say, I can take care of psoriasis in two seconds. One look, and I say, okay, topical. And then I look, one look, biologic. Well, that's not actually a very good medicine. I could do it, but what I didn't pay attention to or even acknowledge is the importance of the patient's impact on body image. And that really should be more important than all this you know, body surface area involvement, the PASI score, stuff like that. But, um, but that's part of psychodermatology also. Now, psychogenic excoriations, which of course officially called neurotic excoriations, um, factitial dermatitis, people who do things on their own skin, that's part of psychodermatology, of course. Uh, people who have delusions of parastosis or many other types of delusions, uh, that's also, that's definitely psychodermatology. And something as simple as itching, which is number one complaint in terms of symptom-wise, that also have a lot of psychological um, overlay. If somebody's happy, relaxed, then they tend to feel less bothered by itch. But if somebody's upset, frustrated, unhappy, same kind of dermatitis can be experienced as much more itchy. You know, because there are so many different conditions that fall under psychodermatology, in fact, probably practically everything, um, it's good to have a way to separate apples from orange, uh, uh, oranges. So what I do is there are two ways to try to understand what am I dealing with. One is the type of psycho, uh, ca different categories of psychodermatological disorders, and the other is the nature of the underlying psychopathology. So let me just go through this one by one. Psychophysiological disorders. This is the term used by psychologists and psychiatrists to refer to bona fide skin conditions, I mean, the bona fide medical conditions, which can be often worsened by emotional stress. Uh, peptic ulcer disease, migraine headache. In dermatology, we have plenty. Um, psoriasis, acne, you know, urticaria, so forth. Um, primary psychiatric disorders, uh, this is different than the previous one because in the primary psychiatric disorder, there is no real skin condition. Everything is self-induced. Uh, this includes factitial dermatitis, neotic excoriations, uh, trichotillomania, onychotillomania, onychophagia, delusions of parastosis, morgellons. And then we have secondary psychiatric disorders. Secondary means secondary to skin disease that are disfiguring. If somebody has uh, mycosis fungoides on the face, now looks like a monster, become very depressed, and develop social isolation, uh, social phobia, that's secondary um, impact, the negative impact of disfigurement. And then lastly, cutaneous sensory disorders, uh, also called cutaneous dysesthesia. And this is when people complain about burning, stinging, um, electric shock kind of, all kinds of sensations. And there's nothing to see on the skin. A million dollar workup systemically reveal nothing. And they come to you. So these are the four broad categories of the types of skin uh, psychodermatological categories. Uh, the other kind, uh, that, the other way is what is the nature of the underlying psychopathology? And you can have anything, but there are biggies. These are the four biggies. Anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, and psychosis. And psychosis is defined by the presence of delusion. Uh, delusion means false idea that the patient is fixated on, extremely ego-invested, impervious to rational discussion. So if you can um, make this kind of distinction, it's very helpful. 
First of all, in terms of the different categories, it's good to make this distinction because if you're dealing with somebody with primary psychiatric disorders, like delusion suppressors, it's good to be very diplomatic. You know, um, whereas the other categories, you can talk to them pretty straight. Like, oh, you have stress, let's talk about stress. Oh, you are devastated by disfigurement, let's talk about what we can do about that. But with delusional patients, you better talk indirectly. You cannot just say, oh, you got craziness. Here's the medicine for craziness. <laughs> um, the nature of underlying psychopathology is also helpful to think about because dermatology providers, uh, we don't have the like one hour appointment like psychiatrists or psychologists. Besides, we don't generally have training for psychotherapy, group therapy. So, and yet these patients often don't wanna go see a mental health prof professional. So if we are to help these people who are more seriously handicapped, I think it's good to be able to consider using psychotropic medications at least the first line drug is dictated by the nature of underlying psychopathology. So if somebody have anxiety, anti-anxiety agent, depression, antidepressant, obsessive compulsive disorder, anti-obsessive compulsive agent, psychosis, antipsychotic. Uh, now, I have 45 minutes to tell you all the medicine and how to use it. <laughs> so I'm not gonna tell you about everything. In fact, if you ever, one, you know, uh, thought that uh, every psychiatrist know how to use 20 different kind of antipsychotic and 40 different kind of antidepressant, that's not true. You know, just like we're not gonna use, you know, 20 different topical steroids, you know, one, each one in, you know, in turn, what we do is we have few favorites. That's exactly how psychiatrists function too. They have few favorites. So I'm gonna share with you my few favorites. And if you feel comfortable with those few favorites, you can take care of most of these conditions. So starting with the primary psychiatric disorder, um, there's anxiety, there's depression, there's psychosis. Is that, well, where's the obsessive compulsive disorder? Obsessive compulsive disorder is officially categorized under anxiety disorder. Even though when people are picking on their acne or pulling their hair, they might not be feeling anxiety. But the moment you tell them not to do it, then they feel ill at ease. There's something called compulsive urge that when they're not doing it, they feel like doing it. You know, they keep on looking at it. And then finally, they can't stand it anymore, they do it. You know, so yes, that is why obsessive compulsive disorder is categorized under anxiety disorder because when you're not doing it, that's when people feel anxious, you at ease, and so forth. So anxiety, which is defined by presence of tension, agitation, stress, inability to relax. There's a physical manifestation, uh, muscle tension, sweating, shortness of breath, palpitation, going to bathroom frequently. I think we all probably experienced this one time or the other. <laughs> so the good thing about psych diagnosis is that we all know what that means. Um, atopic dermatitis, um, one of the famous, the stress responsive condition, but there are a whole host of stress responsive conditions, including other forms of eczema, like namula eczema, dyshydrotic eczema, rosacea, acne. In fact, psoriasis, almost anything that is inflammatory, inflammation can get made worse by emotional stress in large proportion of patients. If you get a whole room full of people with psoriasis and you ask them, what is number one thing that makes your psoriasis worse? The answer is practically always, always uh, the same, stress. And then if you ask them, what is the second thing that makes your skin flare? It's almost always the same, winter weather. <laughs> um, in fact, a study was done many uh, long times ago by Dr. Grismier involving more than 4,000 patients. And what he defined was that, that all these conditions tend to be stress responsive. And within this huge sample, he actually defined what percent of patients actually reported that stress make their condition frequently worse. Hyperhidrosis, 
Lichen simplex conicus, 98%. Rosacea, 94%. When it comes to psoriasis, 62%. Saborea, 41%. And of course, when you call the nearby basal cell <laughs> keratosis, uh, nobody said that is changed by stress. Um, I hope that was for control. Uh, otherwise, I think the investigators are pretty in need of Prozac. <laughs> but anyway. So this is uh, Psoriasis Treatment Center, where I have worked as a director for, I hate to say, almost three decades. Uh, not the whole thing, <laughs> just the building in the front. And, um, and we do Gekkerman. If, if anybody ever wonder what Gekkerman is really like, uh, come visit our place, and you can smell the tar, but don't faint on us. <laughs> it really works. Um, it works for eczema and so forth. But of course, people who do Gekkerman therapy, which is all day, every day, black tar following uh, uh, UVB uh, exposure, is for the worst possible psoriasis, eczema, and other kind of dermatitis patients. And many of them have stress issues. Many of them are like type A. You know, so part of our treatment is also teaching people to relax. This is a patient with hyperhidrosis who failed all kinds of treatments. So the dermatologist who was treating him finally realized the reason he was failing all kinds of treatment is because his hyperhidrosis is in response to anxiety attacks. So he referred the case to me. I put him on doxepin at low dose. Now doxepin, we use it like water. Uh, we use it much more so than psychiatrists. Um, it's, it's well, you know, originally antidepressant, but in the low dose, like 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, it's actually a very good anti-anxiety agent without being addictive. And on top of that, just like any tricyclic anti-depressant, doxepin has anticholinergic effect. What that means is it inhibits sweating. You know, so doxepin is actually a pretty good medication for this. You know, so on doxepin, he basically got under good control. Uh, his anxiety disorder it resolved over time, over many months. And then when something improves psychologically, it's good to not cold turkey stop the medicine. Gradually taper the medication down to nothing, and the anxiety disorder did not come back. Hyperhidrosis did not come back. Um, so it's good to sometimes think beyond the skin. Say, what is causing this? Uh, this is a patient with severe psoriasis who underwent Gekkerman and was doing very well afterwards. But then while he was doing Gekkerman, which is every day, black tar, Monday to Friday, for about one or two months, he told me that his, his anxiety occurs predictably when his, uh, uh, his psoriasis flares predictably when he's very anxious. And he can tell exactly when he's going to be anxious. And I said, why, how can you tell? I said, well, because I'm a bus driver, public Muni bus driver. And Muni bus drivers in San Francisco rotate different routes. And most part of the San Francisco, as you know, is very nice. But there is a place that's not very nice. It's called Tenderloin. <laughs> and the buses run like 2 or 3 in the morning. And he said, you know, he gets somebody who come on, you know, who might be drunk who doesn't pass, you know, pay the bus fare, walk right past him. And when he asks the person to pay the bus fare, that person just scream at him and all that. And you know, they have an instruction. They're supposed to stop the bus, call for help. He did that. Nobody came. And this guy was screaming at like you know, an inch away from his face. And then ever since then, he became extremely nervous. But nobody wanted to. You know, I mean, this is a, a duty that nobody else wants to do. So he couldn't get anybody else to, to switch with him. Now, I didn't want him to uh, be on a medication that can make him uh, sleepy because he's a bus, bus driver. So I put him on Buspar or Buspiron, which is a non-sedating uh, anti-anxiety agent, which is also known among the mental health professionals that frequently Buspiron does not work. But most psychodermatology patients, they're glad to have anything. They'd rather be treated by you than have to go see a mental health professional. And also, they're like psychotropic uh, neophytes. Nobody has ever given them him anything. So, so they seem to respond so much better to Buspiron than any of the psych patients I ever tried to use Buspiron on. 
So Buspa uh, or Buspiron, um, you know, it comes as 10 milligrams. Uh, the typical dose is anywhere from uh, twice a day to four times a day. It's probably one of the safest medication you can use. Side effects almost unheard of. Um, but patients have to take it on a regular basis. Um, if, if somebody's kind of shy about it, you can start with five milligrams. There's also a Dibitap. Dibitap is like a biscuit. You can break, you know, break it in different ways to get different dosage. And it takes about a month before the anti-anxiety effect kicks in. But because it's not addictive, it is not sedating, it does not interact with alcohol. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of the uh, simplest psychotropic medication to, uh, to get your feet wet in terms of prescribing psychotropic medication. And expectation management, you do have to tell the patient it takes about a month before it kicks in. Um, if you need something quick, uh, alprazolam, uh, which is Xanax, nowadays it's all generic and pretty cheap. Uh, this is a very useful medication provided that you use it for short term. Long term, it is a benzodiazepine, so there's a possibility of addiction and so forth, although uh, I have never encountered a case where people actually got addicted. Now, the, the lowest dosage is 0.25 milligrams. It, even if it's generic, sometimes it is scored. Or people can buy a peel cutter. So you can even break that into half. So half of 0.25 is 0.125. Guess what? That's such a low dose, I guarantee it will probably do nothing. And the reason I'm talking about the lowest dose is, once again, um, for dermatology providers, uh, sometimes the thought of writing psychotropic medication is a little bit anxiety provoking. So take one of these first. Don't no, no, just joking. <laughs> you know, so so don't be you know embarrassed about starting with homeopathic dose, and then gradually go up. In, in medicine, you know, one thing that makes learning easy is because we can titrate. We can start with ridiculously low dose, like 0.125, half of 0.25 milligram once a day, goes to twice a day, goes to three times a day. Just convince yourself that this is like nothing. And then you gradually go up. Because these patients, once again, if, if you listen to their you know, concern about stress, about anxiety, they are more than happy. Because oftentimes they feel like, oh, we, we don't do anything except throw some kind of a tube at them. You know, so if you pay attention to something beyond just quick you know, dispensing of medications, they're like overjoyed. And if it takes some time to find the right dose, it's, it's perfectly fine. So, so even if you feel nervous, I guarantee you, half of 0.25 milligrams, even twice a day or three times a day, hardly do anything. And then you gradually go up, then you are bound to hit the right dose. Um, which may be, in, and then if you do this enough times, you feel pretty comfortable because then you get this gut level understanding what is the tolerance for most people. This is just like learning how to do phototherapy. If you've never done anybody before and oh no, somebody's gonna go into UBB box, get burned, I get, I'm gonna get sued, start ridiculously low. <laughs> but make sure that you go up and eventually you get your experience. Um, now, paroxetine, which is uh, Paxil, uh, is, is one of the most convenient medication because it has many, many indications for many, many conditions, three of which are very relevant for us, anxiety, depression, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. So as I mentioned, there are four things that are most relevant for us, anxiety, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and delusion. So if you become comfortable with paroxetine or Paxil, you can take care of three out of four. And the dosing is very simple. It's just 10 milligrams a day is often good enough for anxiety. And this is for more long-term anxiety, where something like alprazolam is more for short-term anxiety. If it's long-term anxiety, you can, you can use paroxetine, you can use low-dose toxapine, or you can use buspa or buspiron. 20 milligrams a day of paroxetine, usually good enough for depression. For obsessive compulsive tendency, like somebody who washed their hand 20 times a day and then come in with hand dermatitis that never gets better with topical steroid, you often have to go to higher dose, like 40 milligrams, 60 milligrams. Now 60 is about what the uh, package insert recommends. Sometimes I go up to 80 milligrams a day. For, this is all for Paxil. 
or paroxetine. You know, now, depression, uh, sometimes uh, depression, people have depressed mood, crying spells, uh, anhedonia means cannot feel uh, pleasure, um, helplessness, hopelessness, worthlessness, that's the subjective. But just like anxiety, uh, anxiety there are physiological component, insomnia, hypersomnia, insomnia means can't fall asleep. There are three kinds of insomnia, early, middle, and terminal. Early insomnia means you cannot fall asleep. Middle insomnia means you wake up frequently, even though you're kind of tired. Terminal insomnia is you wake up early in the morning and you're, bit, you're still tired, but you can't go back to sleep. The terminal insomnia is most specific for depression. Um, hypersomnia is, of course, sleeping too much, loss of appetite, hyperphagia, eating too much. Old people might get constipation or fatigue. Now, depression is a form of stress. It can make all kinds of inflammatory skin condition worse. And also, some of these people end up picking on their skin. Um, so they can present like a neurotic excoriation, like this lady or this man who had a stroke, uh, lost the use of his left arm, became very depressed, and used his right arm to pick on the left arm. Um, there's a physical sign called butterfly sign. This is um, um, sparing in, in the shape of the wing of butterfly um, in, that, some, that sometimes you can see in these patients. And this is sim simply because these people cannot reach there. And real skin disease usually doesn't care whether you can reach there or not. But self-induced conditions are limited to where the patient can reach. So you often get this butterfly sign. Same thing with if you look at the arm, people tend to pick on the extensor aspect of the arm. Almost nobody pick at the flexural surface. You can do it, but it's awkward. If people pick on their leg, they almost always pick on the front of the leg. Practically nobody pick on the back of the leg. So if you see the lesions in those kind of pattern, butterfly sign, extensor arm, front of the leg, and you can't quite figure out what the heck is going on because there's no primary skin lesion, everything is secondary, then think possibly psychoderm, self-induced. Um, and this is uh, the first patient, after she was treated with an antidepressant, in her case, it was doxepin. Nowadays, you don't have to use doxepin. You can use agents like Paxil or other SSRIs that are easier to use. But doxepin does have an advantage. Besides being an antidepressant, it's a very good medication for anxiety and tension. It's also a very good medication to allow people to sleep. It's like sleep-helping medicine that's not addictive. And also, it's a very good anti-itch medication, as you know. you know. So when people pick on themselves, even if it was self-induced, if they keep doing that, the skin gets very irritable. Um, and then uh, you can easily have itch scratch cycle. So doxepin can still be a very good medication. Only thing is that if you use it as anti-itch medication, for sleep medication, anti-anxiety, or sometimes even as analgesic, for people with cutaneous dysesthesia, we're talking about doxepin dose of 10 or 20 or 30, at most 50 milligrams, 50 milligrams a day. If you're gonna use doxepin as antidepressant, usually it's 100 milligrams a day or higher. In fact, um, the maximum uh, allowable dose for doxepin is 300 milligrams a day. Now you say, wow, what kind of crazy person in FDA is you know, specify 300 as the ceiling. The reason it's that way is because it's well known that tricyclic antidepressant like doxepin, there's huge individual variation in terms of how the medication is metabolized. So if everybody in this room got the same dose of doxepin right now, and then after 12 hours or longer, if, we, if you do a blood test for trough doxepin blood level, which is available in practically all the labs, all you have to do is you just have to write it in. Trough doxepin blood level. And have the patient go at least after 12 hours, I mean 12 hours after taking doxepin, you can find up to 20-fold difference among people who took the same dose. You know, so if you're ever using doxepin for like chronic urticaria, and some people say, I feel doxepin, 
How much did you take? I took 30. I took 40. I took 50. You know, did you feel sleepy? No. Then you can actually keep going up. And, and if you ever get nervous, you can do a trough blood level because some people really metabolize medications like doxepin fast. Now, this patient, uh, doxepin was used as antidepressant along with anti-sleep, anti anti-anxiety, and she got better. Um, and the, the other patient also, I used doxepin, um, and it stops uh, picking, depression improved, and amazingly, when the depression improved, this patient cannot pick anymore because it hurts too much. And there is a theory that when people are really stressed out, including you know, uh, severely depressed, they release endogenous endorphins. And endorphins like opiates, like morphine, it makes people indifferent to pain. And when they actually recover from depression, they can't pick on their skin anymore because they don't have, the th uh, possibly they don't have the th uh, endorphin effect and it hurts too much to do it. Um, now, going beyond oxapin, um, um, there are, of course, many different types of antidepressants, fluvoxetine, paroxetine, uh, sertraline, fluvoxamine, citriaplam, you know, which is Celexa, Luvox, Zoloft, Paxil, Prozac. Once again, uh, my personal favorite is um, paroxetine, just because you can hit three things, depression, anxiety, and OCD, just by knowing how to use one medication. And uh, so what's the difference between medications like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil? The main difference is that the Prozac is known to be activating. Sometimes people get more anxious, more nervous when they first take it. We don't need that. In dermatology, we want people to relax, not get activated. Zoloft is kind of neutral, uh, but Paxil or Paroxetine is the most relaxing. And in, in too high of a dose, it's actually sedating. So you just titrate the dose, just like we talked about before. And uh, SSRIs are now um, uh, used, and tricyclic, like doxepin, is not used as much because SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, have less cardiac effect, less orthostatic side effect, less anticholinergic effect, such as uh, dry mouth, constipation, less weight gain, less overdose uh, risk. But uh, the main side effects of medication like paroxetine or Paxil, some people get GI complaints. Uh, men sometimes complain of sexual dysfunction. Uh, there could be some uh, drug interaction and sometimes weight gain. But compared to the tricyclic, it's actually very uh, easy medication to use. In fact, if you remember the fact that most practicing both certified psychiatrists do not feel comfortable or qualified doing physical exam. You know, that's why they actually hire other doctors or even, you know, other uh, healthcare professionals to do physical exam for them, and they feel comfortable using these medications. So I'm not trying to make you reckless, but I just want to let you know these medications are not seriously dangerous medicine in comparison to many other things we use in dermatology, such as immunosuppressants. Um, psychosis. Now, the rest of the time, I actually want to focus on psychosis because uh, not that the psychosis is uh, the biggest part of psychodermatology. As I mentioned, if you really uh, open your uh, you know, awareness to everything that is psychologically relevant, practically everything we do is psychodermatology. But psychosis gets most attention because even the practitioner who is least psychologically minded still cannot get away from these kind of patients. <laughs> Um, so, psychosis is defined by presence of delusion, as I mentioned earlier. That's a fixed, um, false idea that you cannot talk the patient out of. Rational discussion is of no use. Monosymptomatic hypochondriacal psychosis, or MHP, is the term that is actually used mostly in Europe. Uh, to refer to the kind of psychosis that we see in our, pra in our uh, practice. And I think it's a very good term because many of these people have monosymptomatic complaint, like fibers coming out of their skin, fibers moving under the skin, you know, parasites infesting their skin. 
But unlike schizophrenic patients you know, uh, who has many different deficits, not just peculiar delusional idea, but schizophrenic patients also have flat affect, inappropriate affect. They might be laughing at funeral. Uh, <laughs> uh, they might have uh, limited social you know, uh, uh, interaction. Um, schizophrenia is a multi-deficit disorder. Whereas the kind of psychosis we see in practice is monosymptomatic, one complaint. And everything else generally seems not too um, deranged. So until these people talk about fibers or talk about parasites, oftentimes they come across as pretty normal. Now, delusion suppressedosis, uh, you know, uh, Morgellons is a term that was never officially defined by our, you know, any kind of professional body. Um, but it's loosely used to refer to people who talk about fibers or some other inanimate object under the skin or flying out of the skin. You know, somehow their favorite uh, color is blue. <laughs> so, so I hear blue fibers more than other colors. I don't know why. Um, this morphophobia is the delusional end of body dysmorphic disorder. It, uh, oftentimes, these things have a whole spectrum from being preoccupied with certain worries, which is called overvalued idea, to somebody who is um, delusionoid. You know, sounds almost like delusion, but they're still capable of a little bit of flexibility to true delusion. You know, so it, it's almost like people get this kind of idea in their head, and at first they're not so fixated, they're not so deranged. But as the time go by, many of them seems to become more and more fixated, more and more not able to consider any other possibility except for their own ideation. Uh, so, so if you see these people, it, 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 it will be critical to try to treat them early rather than late. In fact, the earliest of this whole process for delusion suppressors seems to be just formication. You know, formication, of course, means crawling and biting sensation. You know, so once in a blue moon, I actually get to see patients who only start having formication, who has not come out with the delusional or delusionoid ideation. But from formication, they, they go to, once again, overvalued ideas, delusionoid ideation, and frank delusion. Now, the good thing is medication like Pimozide, which is, is ORAP, works for all of these. In fact, um, tend to work better for formication than for actual delusion. What that means is, if somebody coming complain about um, parasites, and then when you ask them about symptoms, and I always ask them about symptoms, they typically talk about crawling, biting, stinging sensations. When I start them on medications like Pimozide, which is considered gold standard, um, formication disappears quickly, and, and eventually could even be completely. But the patients practically never change their mind in terms of the fact that they were infested. So when they respond, they're very happy. They come back and say, you know, I, I think the bugs are dying, or, or they're leaving me. You know, but, but, but I practically never had a patient who said, you know what, I was mistaken. I never had the bugs in the first place. Now, uh, delusions of bromosis, uh, that's somebody who thinks they smell bad when nobody can smell the smell. Um, but, but the kind of delusion people can have is only limited by their creativity. You know, so some people will talk about you know, inanimate object in their skin. If you take an x-ray and show that it's negative, they say, oh, this inanimate object or glass or splinters or whatever doesn't show up on x-ray. <laughs> Um, so you, have, you can have all kinds of uh, uh, manifestation of monosymptomatic hypochondriacal psychosis. A lady came up to me, this is my favorite example, you know, and, and she said, here are the parasites. And I look at it and there was, there was only water. So I said, ma'am, I only see water. And she looked at me and said, of course you only see water. These parasites are invisible. <laughs> so, so don't try to talk them out of it. it it's just not useful. Uh, it's, it's like catch-22. If you can talk them out of it, they weren't delusional in the first place. <laughs> now, Pimozide or RAP, 
Uh, I'm going to talk about medications first, and then I'm going to talk about how to convince them to take it, which is the, you know, the, uh, how to convince them to take it is the, the greater challenge. Pimozide, um, ORAP, uh, amazingly effective. By the time you hit three milligrams, most people are greatly improved. I almost never have to go beyond five milligrams a day. And to put it in perspective, this is a homeopathic dose compared to how it is used in psychiatry. Now, the, the, the unique thing about Pimozide ORAP, it has absolutely no psychiatric indication by FDA in the United States. Its official FDA-approved usage in the US is for Tourette syndrome. And that, this is a great advantage because delusional patients, including delusional suppressedosis, they're often kind of paranoid. They look up everything. Let's go vigilance. And they often ask the pharmacist, what is this for, even if you told them what is this for. The problem with medications like risperidone, olanzapine, is that the pharmacist will tell them this is for craziness, and then the patient gets pissed. <laughs> Whereas Pimozide, before they leave my office, I tell them, you know, this is for a condition that you don't have, but it works for your kind of condition. And they say, what is that? And I said, Tourette syndrome, do you know what that is? And I said, no. It's a problem with ticks. And sometimes patients get so excited because they think I'm talking about the insect tick. And they say, give it to me. I got tick. Give it to me. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I have to explain what kind of tick I'm talking about. And, and then they kind of look a little deflated. But then I said, but it's also used for another condition you don't have not in the United States, but some, some other country. You say, what is it? Say, you understand you don't have this condition. Say, I, I understand, what is it? Schizophrenia. No, it's absolutely correct that they don't have schizophrenia. They have some other kind of craziness. <laughs> so the dosing is um, very simple. Now, uh, it is uh, good to consider getting EKG, although American Psychiatric Association uh, the way we use it, which is lower than 10 milligrams, um, which is considered low dose, um, the American Psychiatric Association officially stated that you do not have to get EKG if the patient is not elderly, and that depends on how you consider what is elderly, um, does not have cardiac rhythm problem, and if the dosage is less than 10 milligrams. And in our usage, if the patient is um, older, um, and, and don't let me define that for you. <laughs> As I get older, my definition gets higher. Um, then it, it might be good to do EKG. Uh, what you're looking for is to rule out QT interval lengthening and presence of arrhythmia. If there's any kind of question, you can always ask the cardiologist or internist to vouch for you that, uh, with regard to use of pimozide. Um, uh, and the way it is used uh, it comes in one milligram tablet. Now, if you feel nervous because you never did this before, have the patient break it in half and start with 0 0.5. 0 0.5 of Pimozai, you won't have any problem. In fact, patient probably won't feel anything. And the main side effect, which is rare because we use such a ridiculously low dose, is stiffness and restlessness, which is called extrapyramidal or pseudo-Parkinsonian side effect, just like when somebody used Haldol. You know, so I asked the patient to buy some over-the-counter Benadryl and keep it with them at all times. And if they ever feel stiff or restless, don't get excited, just go ahead and take this medication. Now, I have never seen acute dystonic reaction, which is all of a sudden the hand become tight or leg become tight, but I tell them that if that ever happens, don't get excited, just take Benadryl, it will go away, and it will go away. Now, uh, the dosage, you can start with as little as half a milligram, go up by every, maybe every two, three weeks, and then try to aim for three milligrams. By the time people feel great response, remember it takes six weeks for the maximum benefit to be shown. And once they have great improvement after a month or two or three, don't stop cold turkey. Maintain it for a month or two and gradually go down. And other medications like risperidone or lanzapine, it's the same kind of thing. One, two, three milligram, just start at the lowest and gradually go up. Usually two or three milligrams is already good enough, but I usually start with Pimozide if, 
if they're, you know, unless they're really elderly, yeah, then resveratrol might be safer. So main side effect, we talked about uh, pseudoparkinsonian side effect, the stiffness and restlessness. Restlessness is called akathisia. Rare people get sedated, and rare people get activated. If they get activated, take it in the morning. If they get sedated, take it at night. Now, uh, medications, resveratrol is my usual second go-to medications. Much less concerned about stiffness and restlessness, or even though, since even Pimozide, we use such a low dose, so it's usually not encountered anyway. But theoretically safer for the elderly patients. Um, what I'm going to do is, in the last, Eight minutes, I'm going to talk about how you approach these patients. And if you find, found out that you're going to have to see one of these patients in that examining room, stop. And get your mind into the right mindset. Now, what's the right mindset? The natural mindset is like, oh no, I don't want to do this. I'm already behind. <laughs> but that could compound the problem because these patients so oftentimes, they come with negative idea about all providers. So if you walk in like you're grumpy, they're going to make you twice as grumpy. You know, so, so stop and said, okay, I'm meeting my favorite Hollywood star. <laughs> sometimes it's hard, but I, you know, sometimes I literally take my hand and lift my face, <laughs> the biggest smile I can make. And, and then I just walk in and say, hi, Miss such and such, you know, uh, as positive projection as you can, which is indicated by this smiling face. <laughs> and trying to, you know, prevent the negative projection from the very beginning. Now, don't put any pressure on yourself that, oh, I have to talk about antipsychotic. No, that's too much pressure. The most important thing is not whether you prescribe Pimozide or not, whether you can connect with this patient or not. You know, so that's why the biggest smile and, it, it, and uh, let the patients talk freely for maybe about two, three, two minutes. But don't let them talk freely forever because otherwise you get bent out of shape and your schedule is going to be impossible. So you move in. Why? Because you need to maintain control. More compromised the patient is psychologically, more they lose awareness of proper boundaries. You know, uh, they're not going to say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I took up too much of your time. Not these people. They can take up your whole afternoon, and if you don't agree with them, they complain that you spend only five minutes with them. So you take control. How do you take control? Structured interaction. Question, answer, question, answer. When did this happen? How long did this happen? Do you have allergies? Do you have medications? Bang, bang, like, like a machine gun. But at the same time, make sure you have this bright eye, bushy tail. You know, I'm really glad to see you kind of. Part of medicine is acting. <laughs> so, and, and, and if, if the patients say, you know, I got this parasite right here, right here. I want a biopsy. You know, don't feel like, oh no, biopsy, no more skin, how disgusting. <laughs> I don't want to get into power struggle. I'm a pragmatist when I meet with, you know, work with these people. So, so okay, I'm going to biopsy for you, and they're happy. And, but with some understanding. If the biopsy come back negative, you know, don't keep asking me to biopsy. So you better pick the spot. I'm not going to pick the spot for you. You pick the spot. And if it come back negative, you agree that, that you're going to be more open-minded. What am I trying to do? You know, even if somebody's insane, they're not 100% insane usually. Well, some people are 100% insane, but those people are hopeless. But, but most people are like 80% insane and 20% sane. So you're trying to empower the part that is more uh, together. And um, now, there are some blood tests that you might consider doing, such as thyroid function test, you know, B12, folate, because deficiency in these areas could potentially make people um, uh, psychotic. And then drug screen can be used for certain drugs like amphetamine. Uh, narcotics can also induce this type of condition, although most of these conditions are still de novo, meaning, uh, not, uh, meaning endogenous. 
Now, when you initiate medications like pimozide, of course, don't tell them that this is antipsychotic. My favorite way, and I'm sure you, this, you, know, you figure out your own way, my favorite way is to say, you know, we have looked at all kinds of things, we have tried you know, uh, different things, but we still don't know what caused this, but this condition is really making you miserable. But there is a medication that really works, except we don't know how it works. So this is a trial and error. Would you be willing to try it? Now, if you put it, say it that way, and the patient have no clue that this is a psychotropic medication, most of the time they are more than happy to try it. You know, so that's how I get, and, and this is where the fact that the pimozide has absolutely no psychiatric indication is really helpful. And, um, and I usually don't even broach this topic until I feel like we have connected, until I feel like the patient trusts me, you know, and, and the, the way that I, uh, it's not just what we talked about, but how you see the patients also can help develop the trust. For example, when I see this patient in the middle of the clinic that's pain in the butt, you know, so I, I ask them to come back as the last patient of the clinic. I say, you are my VIP. You know, come back as last patient of the clinic so I can spend more time with you. I want to spend more time with you. So even though you didn't agree with their whole ideation and so forth, if you do something like that, they're grateful. And, and that's also helpful to, to be, develop connection. So I do not talk about pimozide until we feel like we have connected. There's a trust. There's a therapeutic uh, rapport between us. So that's sort of, uh, and once again, if people respond, then don't be anxious to cut it off. Continue for a couple months and then gradually go down and hopefully you can uh, taper the medication off. Uh, and, and eventually, uh, it's very rare that these people get it again once they are properly treated. If, 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 it, if they happen again, like two years later, just repeat the same process. Now, I think I'm like three minutes to the end of my time. Um, sorry, I kind of talked a little too long, but I did want to fully discuss this. Um, any questions? Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Koo, would yeah. you speak to people that come in with their family members also have the same delusion? Yes. That's called folie à deux, which in French means craziness for two. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, uh, that is a very uh, well-known but rare phenomena. Usually in that situation, one person is real crazy, the others are going for the ride. <laughs> so try to only see, identify who is it that is driving this process and try to see only that person. If that person is properly treated, the rest will just disappear. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, in my interaction with patients with delusions of parasitosis, I would noticed like history of traumatic events in their lives or methamphetamines or something like that. Yes. Can you speak to that at all? Yes, you know, uh, things doesn't come out of nothing, even if it's thought to be endogenous. You know, so uh, traumatic event, uh, certainly, you know, the use of crack, cocaine, amphetamine, uh, heroin, other opiates, opiate painkiller, they can all cause this kind of thing. In fact, there's a term called cocaine bug. Cocaine bug is when people are addicted to cocaine, they feel like there's insect crawling. Luckily, most of those people know that this is not real bug, but some people actually become delusional. The first person to describe this in scientific medical literature, Sigmund Freud, because he was a cocaine user himself. Um, so yes, it is important to take that history. Yes. Dr. Ku, great talk. Thank you Thank very you. much. Um, you mentioned Morgellons disease, yes. and I appreciate that. Um, I feel like some providers uh, don't recognize it as a diagnosis. Um, some might feel it's like a subset of delusions of parasitosis. Um, where are you at, like, just, uh, you know, as a diagnostic um, term? And can you talk a little bit specifically about treatments? Yes. Morgellons disease, as I mentioned, has never been officially blessed by any kind of uh, medical uh, body. Uh, it's actually a term that was popularized by some lady in Midwest who started this whole Morgellons uh, group. Now, after the CDC um, did their uh, study uh, using millions of taxpayers' money, 
and then came out with a final conclusion that is probably delusion, then whole Mogellan's website shut down. So technically, Mogellan's disease is gone. Now, the only reason that I still use the term, even though it's not officially uh, defined by anybody, is it actually has some practical utility. Because when we say delusions of parasitosis, then we're talking about somebody complaining about parasites. But as you know, there are a fair number of people who complain about something other than parasite. You know, like something flying out of their skin, above, once again, fibers coming out of their skin, fibers migrating under the skin, and fibers are not parasites. It's an inanimate thing they're talking about. So to include those kind of uh, phenomena and not just a parasite, I actually find Mogellans to be just a useful tool to communicate with the patient. Uh, because when I see these patients, I never, of course, say, you know, this is delusion or this is psychosis or craziness. I never write that in the chat because patient can access your chat. I either write formication or I write, or, or I just write the, you know, the, the exact verbatim quote of the bizarre complaint. So anybody who's reading and know that this person is psychotic. Um, you know, so, so I only use it for practical utility, uh, but the term itself is now defunct. Um, I think I'm out of time. <laughs> In, um, really enjoy this audience. This is fantastic. And uh, thank you very much.